time that's captured up to the next effort. I think we'll go to the second speaker and then we'll uh, uh, leave the questions uh, later. Saturday feeling or another talk on genocide. Um, but to borrow a, a quite poignant statement made by um, Alva Smith earlier on today, it's, it's impossible to be outraged by something that you haven't seen or that you cannot see. And this emanates in the case of cultural genocide in the context of indigenous peoples. Um, for in the interest of transparency, this uh, presentation has just recently been published. Um, and just the final slide is an overarching part of um, an extension to that research that I'm looking at at the minute. So any questions, please do send them my way. Help would be fantastic. So what I've been looking at is the concept of cultural genocide and how that crime lacks definition. And it lacks roots to be able to prosecute it as a crime because of international definition. So cultural genocide is a term used to describe the deliberate destruction of the cultural heritage of a people or a nation for political, military, religious, ideological, ethnical, or racial reasons. With World War II, with the end of World War II, um, genocide became this new phenomenon within international law. And the, the father of the term of genocide is Raphael Lemkin, um, who was a Jewish lawyer who coined the term because of the destruction that he had seen. This is the term that international law and the UN accept, the definition that Lemkin has given to genocide. But when Lemkin defined genocide in its originality, he proposed a cultural component which he called vandalism. And this includes the destruction of people's culture. However, now the legal definition of genocide is confined to acts of physical or biological destruction with the intent to destroy a religious, religious, ethnic, or national group. And what my argument with this paper is, is that can an entire group cease to exist while not one single member has been physically killed? So if their entire culture is wiped out, if their whole cultural identity is wiped out, that group as an entity cease to exist, even though nobody within that group has actually died. So, cultural genocide builds on our existing understanding of the crime of genocide, and it's especially applicable to indigenous peoples of the world who continuously face threats to their cultural survival. What we're seeing at the moment is this transition within indigenous communities um, around the north and south of the world, is this transition from vulnerable groups who sought protection to more self-actualizing entities now who are demanding rights rather than seeking protection. Um, it's important to remember for the duration of this that um, cultural identity is very much a defining element for these peoples. This is how they know who they are. It's because of their culture, it's of their lineage, their um, society that they belong to. And what I'm offering in this presentation is two forms of past cultural genocide and then two forms of contemporary cultural genocide and how they're, a, they're almost an invisible crime. Not only are they a silent crime at the best of times, but they're also invisible. So you can have elements of cultural genocide directed towards the individual, or you can have it directed towards physical aspects of one's culture. So here we have a student who is a North Canadian Indian who was taken into the custody of the state 
it was a church and state operation called the Canadian Residential School Systems, um, if you're familiar with it, um, where the state and church, hand in hand, literally rallied up every indigenous and tribal child they could and put them into institutionalised educational care, um, that care being a very loosely imposed word. What happened, what you can see is when he entered, he was in full tribal attire. He had hairstyles that was reminiscent of tribal culture. Um, in Canadian native culture, if the longer your hair, the more reputable you are in your society. So your hair doesn't get cut because when your hair grows longer, it's because you are older, you know more, you are more wise than what you can share. And then when he left the school, which is on the right hand side, you can see he has been completely westernized. What they also did in the Canadian schools was if susceptible to sun, they would refrain from exposing you to the sun. They thought their skin would become too dark when they were exposed to sun. So outside activities for children in these schools were also restricted. And um, you can see in his skin tone, even between the before and after, there is clear pigment dif differentiation. The other form of cultural genocide is an attack of your cult of the culture's physicalities. So places of worship, for instance, here. This was both pictures were from 1915, six months apart, and the whole idea behind it is if you ruin a place of gathering for a social entity, they have nowhere to gather anymore. So that association, that freedom of association, is completely taken away. So the goal to get this international agreement of cultural genocide, it's not only for the international community to be able to prosecute the crime, it's also for victims and survivors of the crime who experienced this, who lived through this, who had ancestors lived through this, grandparents, great-grandparents, whose suffering is completely unacknowledged because the crime technically doesn't exist. So the plight that they suffered is irrelevant to the societies that they're in today. So if we consider that many of the world's indigenous groups have lifestyles very different to mainstream populations and their customs and traditions are what unite and hold these communities together and bestow an important sense of identity for the members of these groups which has been passed down through countless generations. So if an entire cultural heritage, identity and lineage of any group is annihilated and forced assimilation, so this is a key element of this um, aspect of cultural genocide, this forced assimilation, into mainstream society occurs, the group as a cultural entity ceases to exist. And if these groups were intended targets of these aggressive acts, is this not an act of genocide? So one of the two of the main components in, for the crime of genocide to be prosecuted is there needs to be intent proven and it needs to be directed at a specific group. So there are two key components for other than the fact that now underneath the, national, the International Genocide Convention it has to result in biological or physical um, destruction. So in history there's two case studies that I want to draw particular attention to because I think that there is two forms of cultural genocide. So you have one aspect which is violent and then you have a non-violent but intentional form which I'm going to speak a little bit more about, Canada. So in the Guatemalan civil war, it was an impossibly long civil war, 36 years, and cultural genocide was an instrumental part of the crimes committed by the state and the military upon the, the indigenous communities. The goal, as envisioned by the state, was complete destruction of the Mayan way of life, culture, history, and society. The tactics employed by the military and civil patrols were both physically, but also, and importantly, psychologically cruel and abusive. The aggression was directed against elements of profound symbolic significance for the Mayan culture. 
So what happened here was the, the, the ideology of the state at the time, the state had taken power, this party, um, the rebels came along, wanted to overthrow that party. The state taught the indigenous Mayans of Guatemala were subhuman and completely inferior and they would be way too sympathetic to the rebels' cause. All it would take is for the rebels to have a chat with them and they will help them fight and overthrow the government. Where there's population and where there is a vast population, and Guatemala was one of the few states where the indigenous population at the time outnumbered the general population, that was fear. And again, at the time, group rights didn't exist. They didn't exist in international law because if you give groups rights, there's way too much chance of an uprising or a resurgence of it all. What they did was anything that had a symbolic effect for the Mayan culture was targeted. So what they did was the military, the head of the head structure for the military in Guatemala was named after the Mayan sun god. The head building for the police patrols and civil patrols, and these police and civil patrols, their job was not to maintain peace and security. Their job was quite literally to go out into the Mayan highlands and beat and hurt or kill and maim any Mayan that they came in contact with. That was the direct orders of the government. There was nobody exempt from this. Um, there's a very traumatic report that you can read on it, and the, the historic clarification report of Guatemala, and it's aptly called Memories of Silence, where nobody spoke out about this, of what was going on. But while this was happening, and physical acts of genocide were happening, nobody seemed to recognize the cultural aspects of genocide. And this was an intentional act on the state. What they decided to do was, when we can't physically kill them, when we cannot physically destroy this group, well, let's attack everything that holds them together as a group so that they can't exist anymore. What they did was they used defamation of indigenous culture to the use of Mayan names and symbols for task forces and military structures. They created these model villages. This is the only picture I can find anywhere of these Guatemalan model villages. It's not great quality, but it can be kind to make it out. So indigenous Mayan were taken from the highlands and they were forced into these villages along country roads nearer the townlands. Um, but tribal custom and community was completely disrupted, and this was intentional. No two family members could live on the same stretch of street. No two people from the same community could live in the same model village here. And um, it was completely illegal. If you were caught to be speaking any Mayan languages in public, you would be lashed. If you were caught in Mayan dress or practicing Mayan rituals, um, you could end up killed and used as a public display to deter anyone else from following suit. The names that they gave these villages, again, was not accidental. These were called, the names was like Hope Hill and Prosperous Avenue and all these ideological names to make them seem very different to what they were. Another aspect of psychological cruelty was when young men and boys came to these model villages, they were forcefully recruited by the civil patrols and the police force and then sent back to the highlands to attack mines. So they were literally turning brother on brother um, in indigenous communities. Brothers are not linked by biology, by biology can be just a societal um, lineage and kinship. But this was again to change every sense of familiarity they had. So no longer did they just need to be afraid of the state and the police, now they needed to be afraid of each other. So again, just causing this complete distrust at the core of this entire society. They destroyed sacred sites, ceremonial spaces, and cultural artifacts. Indigenous language and dress was repressed. Um, and again, this is from the CEH report, so that's the report for historical clarification. 
Um, they found that it was not only an attempt to destroy the base of the guerrillas, but above all to destroy the cultural values that ensured cohesion and collective action in the Mayan communities. And what happened was Reyes Montt, who I don't know if you're familiar with, he was this guy here, um, in the 36-year-long civil war, he was head of state for two of those years, and over 70% of the deaths of the entire civil war took place in those two years while he was head of state. This concept of justice is coming further and further away from victims and survivors of cultural genocide in Guatemala. Even physical genocide, but again, for the point of this research, it's, it's focusing on the cultural aspects. Um, there's an argument here, this was one of the first genocide trials that was tried at a national level, um, rather than an international level. And it really has just proven that that just does not work. Um, he has too many powerful friends in too high places. Uh, he was convicted of genocide, and 11 hours later, that conviction was overturned. They said that it wasn't genocide, they were wrong. And that was a Supreme Court ruling in Guatemala, so it's, it's laughable and it's concerning. Um, but it's worrying that this crime still isn't recognised. He died three months ago, having never faced any type of punishment or prosecution, let alone for the biological, but for the cultural aspects that so many people seem to have forgotten existed in Guatemala. From displaced people alone, it's estimated that 250,000 mining ended up displaced because of the civil war that was happening in Guatemala. So that means they went north, they went south, and they haven't been rehomed or they haven't been brought back together because in essence not to rule at all with the same home but it's indigenous people aren't great with census you know so they don't tend to participate in census collection because they don't recognize that system of authority by the state so they, they don't exist as people anymore so the Maya population lost three quarters of itself during the civil war even though there could be anything up to a million direct descendants from these peoples living around the world to try and find each other, but again, there's no protections for cultural um, homogeny in these groups because cultural genocide isn't recognized as a crime that was committed. So while there is that, the physical element of genocide that you can see overshadows cultural genocide, there's also a non-violent but intentional form of cultural genocide. And for this, it's the example of the Canadian residential school system. So, this ran for over 100 years. The last residential school only closed in 1996. Um, the national apology for this system only came out in 2015. And even at that, it was a really substandard apology um, when it came to what happened. What happened was Justin Trudeau formally acknowledged what happened in the Canadian residential school systems, but he didn't apologize. He apologized for the lived experience of some of the people in it. And essentially what he was saying was, the system wasn't bad. For some people, they had a bad time. We're sorry about that, but the system was fine. And so this is because this crime isn't recognized as a legitimate crime, they feel like the system wasn't aimed at anybody. The system was aimed at assimilation. That was fine at the time. This is Thomas More, whose original name is not known. And again, what's important to note about his dress previous going in is the jewelry that he's wearing. Both ears are pierced. And the whole garb that he is wearing means that he was most likely had elders for parents. He would have been of quite significance in the family. And jewellery for this is important to know. And again, he left school less than a year later, completely westernised. His hair has been cut. He's in a three-piece tailored suit. He just he doesn't look tribal anymore. Because once they entered into these schools, all tribal um, traditions were banned. So corporal punishment was alive and well, um, beatings, lashings, 
everything if you were caught speaking tribal languages to each other. This happened if you were caught practicing tribal religion, you were um, punished. And over this time, the Canadians saved 250,000 children. So if you think that's just from the indigenous population of Canada, that is a huge portion of the indigenous population. And the goal was very much, we need to wipe out this population. Um, the goal of the actual motto of this Indian program, which is what it was called, was don't kill the child, but kill the Indian in the child. So this was the idea. The idea was to turn them into white men. It would make much more sense. We're going to educate them, we're going to make them smarter, and everything is going to be happy. But they didn't account for this complete disjointation of families, of friends. Usually they took them from one side of Canada and brought them thousands of miles to the other to eliminate even the possibility of parents arriving to see these children. So the question asks is, can the Genocide Convention be interpreted to include cultural genocide and corroborate a plight suffered by the victims of the Canadian Residential School. So these are quotes from the Minister for Indian Affairs at the time. And he said, Indian children in residential schools die at a much higher rate than in their villages, but this does not justify a change in policy of the department, which is geared towards a final solution for our Indian problem. So again, the word being used, it's very similar to World War II, Nazi Germany, final solution, it's an Indian problem. The fact that they've acknowledged these children died at a much higher rate, but doesn't warrant a change in policy. So these children, they didn't have pathogens, they didn't have immunity to westernized pathogens, so a simple cold could kill them in a matter of weeks. At one point, the state took so many children, they couldn't house them anymore, they couldn't hold them, they couldn't, care, again, care for them. So 6,000 of them were forcefully exposed to tuberculosis, because they said, well, we'll just get rid of them, but they died by a disease, our hands are clean. Um, 6,000 children were put into a mass grave on the grounds of the school and their deaths weren't communicated to their family. So if family members came to see them, they were just told, you can't. We're whitening them now. We're turning them into white people. You don't belong here. You need to go home. Further than that, the great aim of our legislation has been to do away with the tribal system and to assimilate the Indian people in all respects. In order to educate the children properly, we must separate them from their families. Some people say that this is hard, but if we want to civilize them, we must do this. So this aim, they knew, this was always the aim, this wasn't an accidental policy that went into place. But again, at the time, the idea or concept of cultural genocide didn't exist. We've had, the Canada's had a Truth and Reconciliation Report that was sponsored and backed by the UN. So they went on a fact-finding and truth-seeking mission. And in this, the judge who headed the entire investigation, on the day of its conclusion, said that they found that what happened in the residential school systems was nothing short of cultural genocide. The government, the very next day, on the same channel, had a Holocaust survivor from Germany come and give a speech and say, I completely disagree with the finding of cultural genocide to say that this takes away from victims of physical genocide. You're trying to lessen what a crime that happened to us happened in this instance. So this was a blatant attempt of the state to decrease attention on the crime that was slowly starting to be accepted or started to be even spoken about in this world. So why is the lack of recognition there? Besides the fact that usually in the UN it was colonizing powers that have power. Um, but in the General Assembly, so the, the Genocide Convention got drafted in 1946. And in the original one, they had genocide as the denial of existence, the right of existence of entire human groups. So there was nothing in this to say that it had to be biological. But this was restricted by votes, of course. Um, 
So what they said is thus meaning the British culture and society is attacked and they are forcibly removed from their lands and homes, it would be consistent with our understanding of genocide and as the assembly understood. A group who had their entire life, way of life upended and destroyed. The case of cultural genocide in Canada, this type of um, hybridic assault on indigenous populations is no less severe than other strategies of elimination. This is something that's commonly used in international law where they describe cultural genocide as the less bloody cousin of physical genocide. That it's not as relevant, it's not as important, it doesn't pose as a severe threat. And that remains to be seen. It depends on the interpretation of genocide. If you agree, perhaps, with me, or if you agree with the drafters in the UN, that is your choice. Um, indigenous peoples, not always, but usually occupy lands that are vast and rich in natural resources, which has been a long-term and systematic treatment at the hands of colonizing powers. So this is one of the really important reasons behind this lack, or this lack of will to even maintain um, an agreement on definition. So I'll ask you, does genocide necessarily mean the immediate destruction of a nation, or could a coordinated plan of different actions aimed at a particular group to destroy its essential foundations that make them a group be genocide? And um, Akavan, who is one of the few writers and champions of cultural genocide recognition within law, I says, it's important to appreciate that genocide is a crime against groups, in particular against a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, and the question to, if it's, to its specific expression as physical, biological, or cultural is thus secondary to the intent to destroy. So if this understanding is applied, then cultural genocide is very real, and it's very accepted, and it's very easy to implement under the genocide convention. So again, why is there this lack of political will behind it in this era, in this day and age, when we understand the importance of diversity in culture, when we understand the importance of sustaining culture. And it's not a surprise that the only NGO in the world who only looks after the rights of indigenous people is called Survival. And that is their name because that is the goal of all indigenous communities, it is to survive. Rather than be assimilated, they don't wish to be incorporated into the national mainstream. They want to survive, they want the protections afforded to them, and they want the um, tools of sustainability, of course what they want to be, who they are, and what they know to be. Um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission questioned this when it came to Canada because the fourth sub-article in the Genocide Convention qualifies the forced removal of children from one group to another as an act of physical genocide. Now, at the time that this was written, the Genocide Convention hadn't been ratified. But it's still curious to note that today, the Canadian state who have ratified the Genocide Convention, who see that as an act of physical genocide, still haven't recognized that it was a civil wrong what happened. Again, they still say the system was fine for the time, just the experience of few has given it all an entirely bad name. The International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia recognized that genocide encompassed the destruction of a group as a distinct social identity, and it didn't have to be through physical death, it could be through the purposeful eradication of culture and identity. So are the differences between physical and cultural genocide semantic rather than substantive? And as it stands right now, it is kind of up in the air. There is still a huge lack of political will behind the definition of this crime at an international level. Um, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, has only ever prosecuted one case for cultural destruction or the destruction of cultural property. So the chances of them recognizing cultural genocide in the near future is slim to none. But I come back to what I said at the beginning is the fact that this is an invisible crime, and I realize that I've given you examples which can be considered to be quite dated. But this is still happening today in front of many people's eyes that people aren't recognizing the dangers that are happening here. 
So educational institutions as a catalyst for contemporary acts of cultural genocide. And there's two examples that I gave for this. So this is industrial skills in India and national skills in French Guyana. So in India, there's this emerging concern where these mega schools are being built by multinational corporations. And what they're doing is they're educating indigenous children. One of these schools has 27,000 students. They're enormous. They're the size of universities, but they're to give primary education. And what they do is they take generally tribal children into the school. They give them free schooling, so free education, free food, free boarding for their six years, but they're conditioned during those six years that they're there because these tribal children occupy valuable land. Their family occupy valuable land. Not valuable in, any, in the sense that it has natural resources, but valuable in its location. So these MNCs want to occupy the land. These children then leave the school after six years of constant conditioning and then to return to their families and say, well, look what they've done for us. They've educated us for free. They've fed us, they've clothed us. Look what we can do now. We can go to college. All they want is this land. We can move 10 miles up the road. What difference does it make? But one of the identifying factors, which is defined underneath the UN Convention on the Rights of Indigenous People, is their unquestionable ties with land. This is what one of the defining elements to be even considered as an indigenous person is there has to be a connection with the land. A second example is the national schools of French Guyana. So in French, so French Guyana is an overseas territory of France. So therefore, the laws of France govern Guyana. France has got a very strange system when it comes to minority. Sorry. When it comes to the protections of minority groups in general. On paper, it's fantastic because they don't recognize them. Because like, everybody in France is equal. Doesn't matter what religion you are, what color you are, what orientation you are, everybody is equal. But there's a danger to this. So the same rules apply to all the citizens in French Guyana. In Guyana, it's 95% rainforest. 95% of the population are considered tribal. What's happening now is they're being forced, tribal children are being forced to have compulsory primary education. But underneath French legislation, all children of France receive a free compulsory education, or primary school education. So this is translated into French Guyana. So what they're doing now is they're forcefully removing children from tribal settlements throughout the rainforest, bringing them to the coast of French Guyana and schooling them for six years, and then just sending them back. So they've been disjointed from their families for six years. They can't speak tribal languages anymore. They can read, they can write in French, they can do basic arithmetic. But when they get sent back to their tribes, they can't hunt, they can't fish, they can't build a hut, they can't communicate, they don't remember their religious practice, they don't remember their religious language because all of the education is through French. So again, this is a complete erasure of the people and because it's compulsory, no children are escaping this at the minute. Every child, once you turn seven, is taken. How can you determine if a child is seven when it's a tribal community? They guess. If the child looks seven, they come. It's as simple as that. A more worrying statistic that's come out, and this is again in conjunction with a research project I did with Survivor International, where I mentioned, is the suicide rate of young people in French Guyana. So between the ages of 16 to 25, is 45 times more likely than their uh, mainstream counterparts or their national counterparts. And is there a direct correlation here? The wipeout of their culture, they've sent home, they're no longer people. Who are they? They are people, but they don't have an identity. They're not French citizens, because they don't look like French citizens, they don't live in France, but they've been schooled in French. 
They can't go back to their tribal communities because they can't exist there. They don't remember. They've been completely removed from it. So even their parents, they can't communicate to. This age of 16 to 25 should be when they've just finished school, world in the oyster, in their hand. Something is going wrong here. There's also been a huge insurge now of military recruitment going on in tribal villages in French Guyana, in which the schools are telling the children, this is a great opportunity. Otherwise, you're going to go back to your tribe and not be able to live there. So why don't you just go and join the army instead, and at least you're going to have money, and this is fantastic. And again, this is a, little, this is a sensitive issue that we're still working on at the minute with people on the ground in Guyana. There's a, there is a huge cloud of fear as well that are talking out about this. Um, but there is definitely a correlation. These are school leaver children that are finding no other solution than other than take their lives. Um, for a system that's meant to educate, what's it telling us? That is there such a thing as a universal education? The problem, as I see it and that I put forward, is there is such a thing as a dangerous education, especially when it comes to tribal and indigenous children. If they don't receive an appropriate education, that allows them to sustain their culture, their identity, but also extra elements between reading and arithmetic. There needs to be a combination of both, and until then, this is gonna to continue to happen, and it's not even classified as a crime. Nobody is recognizing what's happening in both of these instances at the minute because cultural genocide isn't accepted as a problematic crime in the international legal realm. So what next? So although the distinct recognition of cultural genocide, either via separate international treaty or treaty amendments of existing frameworks, such as UBH or does not currently have, I have said widespread, but I'm gonna say any political support and within the international community, it should never, nevertheless remain the goal that is actively and incrementally pursued by human rights advocates. But is that enough? That's who's championed this crime. It's a very small percentage of people versus what should be championing this crime. And until we do, it's going to end up in a very precarious position. We're losing languages by the day, we're losing cultures by the day, and the danger with memory is that's very much what it can possibly become, is that just a memory if it's not preserved and if the protections aren't given. And that is it, so I hope that I kept your attention for that.